0: Welcome friends, I'm your host Adrian, and yes, you found us, Tea with Puppets, a podcast about Canadian stamp collecting. Yeah! This is episode number 17, and today we'll be talking about a founding father of Canada, the first Irishman in the English-speaking world to appear on a postage stamp, and the victim of the only politically motivated assassination in Canadian history. More in just a moment. Hello friends, thanks for joining us. If you haven't guessed it already, today we'll be talking about the politician Thomas Darcy McGee. He contributed to the founding of our great nation, but he was also killed some short years later in the only politically motivated assassination in Canadian history. He was also honored on a stamp by Canada Post in 1927, making Darcy McGee the first Irishman in the English-speaking world to appear on a postage stamp. Before we learn more about how he ended up on the stamp, let's learn a bit more about his life. The man, widely known as Darcy McGee, was born April thirteenth, 1825 in Carlingford, Ireland, as Thomas Darcy Etienne Hughes McGee. The young McGee was a Catholic Irishman who hated the British rule of Ireland. In 1842, at the age of 17, he emigrated from Ireland to the United States and eventually settled in Boston. He began to make a name for himself almost immediately. After delivering a speech attacking the British rule, at the Society of Boston Friends of Ireland, he was hired at the Boston Pilot. It was the official newspaper of the Archdiocese of Boston and claimed the title of America's oldest Catholic newspaper, having been in continuous publication since its first issue on September 5, 1829. In 1844, Darcy McGee would become the co-editor of the Boston Pilot. McGee's work eventually caught the attention of Daniel O'Connell, who led the movement for Irish self-determination. In 1845, just at the onset of the Potato Famine, he returned to Ireland to fill a position at the Freeman's Journal, a journal that was closely linked to O'Connell's party, the Repeal Association. In 1848, as revolution swept across the European continent, McGee attempted to lead a peasant revolution to overthrow the British rule and secure Irish independence. When his efforts failed, he became wanted by the authorities, and to avoid capture, he disguised himself as a priest and escaped to the United States in October 1848. He landed in New York, where he eventually established the New York Nation and the American Salt in Boston, newspapers focusing on the voices of the Young Ireland movement. During his second stint in America, Darcy grew disillusioned with democracy, republicanism, and the United States, These feelings can be partially blamed on the rising popularity of the Native American party with its record of bitter hostility to the Irish. On a lecture tour through Canada during this time, he was struck with the wide measure of liberty enjoyed by his church and his countrymen under British rule. This undoubtedly influenced him to once more to take up residence under the Union Jack. So in 1857, McGee emigrated to Montreal, believing Canada was far more hospitable to the Catholic Irish than was the United States. He would remain a persistent critic of American institutions and the American way of life. He also accused Americans of hostile and expansionist motives toward Canada and of desiring to spread its Republican ideas all over North America. He worked hard to convince the Irish Catholics in Canada to cooperate with the Protestant British in forming a country with a close alliance with Britain to avoid American dominance. The vehicle to share these views was a new paper called the New Era he founded when he came to Montreal in 1857. In his editorials in this paper and pamphlets he distributed, he attacked the influence of the Orange Order and defended the Irish Catholic right to representation in the Assembly, in December 1857, Thomas Darcy McGee was elected to Canada's Legislative Assembly as one of the three representatives from Montreal. In public life, as in his writing, McGee became a staunch supporter of the cause of Canadian nationhood. After establishing a publication and a new political career in just under a year, McGee had arguably become one of the staunchest apostles of British American Union and nationality. As he said in one speech at the time, quote, The next motive for union, to which I refer, is that it will strengthen rather than weaken the connection with the empire so essential to these rising provinces. It may be said that it is rather strange for an Irishman who spent his youth in resisting that government in his native country to be found amongst the admirers of the British constitutional government in Canada. To that remark, this is my reply. If in my day, Ireland had been governed as Canada is now governed, I would have been as sound a constitutionalist as is to be found in Ireland." To those of his own racial origin, he addressed these words, We Irishmen, Protestant and Catholic, born and bred in a land of religious controversy, should never forget that we now live in a land of the fullest religious and civil liberty. Initially, he worked with the short-lived reformed government of George Brown, eventually defecting to the conservatives in 1861 to endorse a bill for separate Catholic schools. In 1863, he joined John A. MacDonald's government as Minister of Agriculture, immigration and statistics. He was also a Canadian delegate to the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences of 1864. At the Quebec conference, McGee introduced the resolution which called for a guarantee of the educational rights of religious minorities in the two Canadas. McGee also continued to speak out against the Fenian Brotherhood of America, who advocated a forcible takeover of Canada from Britain by the United States. Their objectives could easily have been based directly on McGee's own revolutionary screeds as a young man. McGee now encouraged the Irish national struggle to follow more or less the Canadian model of limited self-government within the British Empire. He was eventually seen as a traitor by the very Irish community he sought to defend. By 1866, McGee was in political trouble with his Irish constituents in Montreal. He had antagonized the Irish vote and had become a liability. As the general federal election of 1867 approached, McGee was expelled from the St. Patrick Society, and the Society's president, Bernard Devlin, was nominated to oppose him for the seat of Montreal West. So when the election came later that year, McGee was still popular enough to win the seat by a slim majority. He would take a seat in the first Canadian Parliament in 1867, But due to his declining popularity, he was not included in MacDonald's first post-Confederation cabinet. By early 1868, McGee had begun planning to leave politics for a job in the civil service, an appointment which John A. MacDonald had promised him by the summer. He also hoped to spend more time on his writing and poetry. However, he was never given the chance to take that post. On April 7, 1868, McGee participated in a parliamentary debate on the Nova Scotia concerns about Confederation that went on past midnight. After finishing shortly after 1 a.m., he walked back to the boarding house where he was staying. McGee was opening the door to the Trotters boarding house in Ottawa when he was shot in the head and died immediately. Someone had been waiting for him on the inside, but the assassin escaped without a trace, even as several people came running to the scene to assist Darcy McGee. The authorities suspected Athenian conspiracy and swiftly arrested a man named Patrick James Whelan within 24 hours of Darcy's assassination. Whelan maintained his innocence throughout his trial and was never proven to be Athenian. He was hung for the crime of Darcy's assassination on February 11, 1869 in Ottawa. The jury was decisively swayed by the forensic evidence that Whelan's gun had been fired shortly before the killing, together with the circumstantial evidence that he had threatened and stalked McGee earlier. Although Whelan denied that he was the hitman, he said just before his death that he knew the identity of the killer and that he was present when McGee was assassinated, which of course would have made him guilty as an accessory. Historian David Wilson points out that the forensic tests conducted in 1972 shows that the fatal bullet was compatible with both the gun and bullets that Whelan owned. Wilson concludes that, The balance of probabilities suggests that Whelan either shot McGee or was part of a hit squad but there is still room for reasonable doubt as to whether he was the man who actually pulled the trigger. End quote. So what was the legacy of Darcy McGee? Sir John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of Canada, paid tribute to McGee the day after his murder and rose in the Parliament just before moving for the adjournment of the House. Quote, He who last night, nay this morning, was with us, whose voice is still ringing in our ears, who charmed us with his marvelous eloquence, elevated us by his large statementship, And instructed us by his wisdom, his patriotism is no more. He is foully murdered. If ever a soldier who fell on the field of battle deserved well of his country, Thomas Darcy McGee deserved well of Canada and her people. He might have lived a long and respected life had he chosen the easy path of popularity rather than the stern one of duty. Darcy McGee was given a state funeral in Ottawa and interred in a crypt at the NDG Cemetery in Montreal. His funeral procession in Montreal drew an estimated crowd of 80,000, this at a time when Montreal had a total population of 105,000 people. McGee is remembered as a great orator, writer, poet and politician. He was unique by being an early advocate for minority rights at a time when this was an unpopular view. He also played an instrumental role in persuading the Irish population of Canada to support Confederation. So now let's learn how Darcy McGee came to be on a stamp in 1927. It can be attributed mostly to the work of Charles Murphy, the Liberal MP for Russell, Ontario, who later became Postmaster General under Mackenzie King in 1921. Born in Ottawa in 1862 of Irish parents, Murphy had long regarded McGee as an iconic figure whose career exemplified the Irish contribution to Canada. That contribution, he believed, had been written out of Canadian history. As an example, McGee had not even been mentioned in George Wrong's school textbook, Canada, a short history published in 1924. As Charles Murphy would write at the time, quote, whether it is due to the usual conspiracy of silence or the fashionable habit of drawing the pall of oblivion over the achievement of Irishmen, we are going to have a change made, end quote. And Charles Murphy followed through. Charles had been instrumental in getting the Darcy McGee statue erected after years of opposition from anti-Irish and anti-Catholic elements. It was placed after much compromise at a spot behind the Parliament facing the library in 1923, and it still exists there to this day. Charles's next effort would be much grander. Murphy was a key figure to the drive for a highly visible public celebration of the centenary of McGee's birth. 500 people, comprising of successful and respectable Irish Canadians, along with members of the country's political and social elite, were invited to a banquet at Ottawa's Chateau Laurier Hotel on April 13, 1925. The banquet speeches were also broadcast on CNR radio from coast to coast and would focus on the McGee, the nation builder, and statesman. At the time, McLean's magazine described the event as one of the most imposing, the most unique, ever held in Canada and Canada's tribute to an adopted son who belongs to the centuries, an event of significance in the national life that will have its place in history. Jonathan Barrett wrote to Murphy a week after the event to tell him, you have brought honor to our race and religion and written a bright page on Canadian history. The celebration was also covered in many international papers as a momentous nod to a founding father of Canada. Speaking of confederation, the Diamond Jubilee of Canada was also soon to be feted. There was a widespread feeling that a series of stamps depicting some of the principal Canadian statesmen should be issued. There would end up being eight stamps issued on June 29, 1927 to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Canada's Confederation. So there were two series that were issued. The first was five stamps issued as part of what is called the Confederation Series. And then there's a second set of stamps, three stamps actually issued called the Historical Issues, which are Scott catalog numbers 146 to 148. These stamps featured Sir Wilfrid Laurier and Sir John A. MacDonald on one stamp, Robert Baldwin and Sir Louis LaFontaine on another, And finally, Thomas Darcy McGee alone on his own stamp. They were originally supposed to be issued in July 1926, but their release was deferred to June 29, 1927 for the Diamond Jubilee. Looking at the decision to have Darcy McGee on his own stamp, it's hard not to see the unmistakable hand of Charles Murphy. While McGee was one of the so-called Founding Fathers of Canada, he was not one of the sixteen delegates sent to the 1866 London Conference, which directly led to the creation of the British North American Act. So while there could have been many other politicians to choose from, they were not honored in the same way as McGee. For this reason, we can say with some certainty, the popularity garnered by the McGee Centennial Birthday Celebration and the role Charles Murphy held as Postmaster General must have had a significant impact on McGee being selected for commemoration on a stamp. The popularity garnered by McGee's centennial birthday celebration and the role Charles Murphy held as Postmaster General must have had a significant impact on McGee being selected for commemoration on a stamp. So now let's learn a little bit more about the stamp. It's a five-cent denomination steel engraved stamp with a deep violet color. It's based on a portrait of McGee taken by noted photographer William James Topley. The design was approved by the postmaster Charles Murphy on October 25, 1925, two years before it was released. I've added a picture of the proof he approved to the show notes, so you can check that out. If you don't have the stamp in your own collection, don't despair. The stamp is not hard to find in good condition, or expensive for that matter, But that's not a bad thing. It makes it easy to make it a great addition to your collection to celebrate Canada's 150th anniversary. So that's it for the 17th episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. The time you take to do this helps us get the word out, so we appreciate it immensely. If you're looking for more about this show, make sure to check us out at teawithpuppets.com. To see the stamps mentioned in this episode and more, click on the show notes image at the top right corner of our website or the link we've added to the description of this podcast episode. If you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear too. You can email us over at feedback at teawithpuppets.com. Finally, if you're on Facebook, make sure you like our page or follow us on Twitter at our handle, teawithpuppets. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us soon again for our next episode. Have a super rest of the day, and happy collecting.